As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Art of the Hustle is a production of iHeartRadio. You're listening to The Art of the Hustle, the show that breaks down how some of the world's most fascinating people have hustled and learned their way into achieving great things. I'm your host, Jeff Rosenthal, co-founder of Summit. And in today's episode, I am very excited to chat with my friend, mentor, really mentor, and, you know, frankly, pillar of culture on which myself and any other event organizer stands on the shoulders of Michael Lang. Michael is the godfather of the Modern Music Festival. As the co-founder and spirit of the Woodstock Music Festival, which he threw at the age of 24 years old, more than 400,000 people showed up and it became one of the great moments in music and cultural history. One of the things that really struck me from my conversation with Michael was how he always embraced and was listening to his surroundings, acting and reacting with the given resources that he had in the moment and doing first and apologizing later. Please enjoy my conversation with Michael Lang. Thank you for being on the podcast, Michael. Really appreciate you being here. It's my pleasure. You're such an incredible friend, such an amazing inspiration to me and to, you know, many, many, many people around the world. So honored that you join us. Thanks again. Definitely my pleasure. So you are in quarantine right outside of Woodstock, New York, on a fair amount of land, but without a lot of people. Yes. Well, there are a lot of family, which is great. Which is fantastic. And you've been in this region of the world now for a very long time with your offices in New York and your home out in out in Woodstock. Would you, did you grow up up there? No, I grew up in Brooklyn, Brooklyn, New York. Okay. It's in the description. Anyone listening, I am certain knows that you are, you know, one of the founders of Woodstock. You, you have an amazing body of work over the four decades following. I want to start from where you started. You're in Brooklyn, but I know that you had made your way down to Florida where your sort of professional story starts. Bring us back there. How old were you? So, no, this was post-high school. I I was at NYU at the time. I think I was probably 19, maybe 20, basically the beginning of the third year uh, at NYU, and suddenly realized one day that I really wasn't meant to spend another two years in college. There was too much going on in the world that, that was exciting and just drew me in. So 
you know, in what's become t- typical fashion, I made a career decision and moved to Coconut Grove, Florida and opened a head shop. <laughs> Incredible. And this is, this is mid sixties. This is mid sixties. Yes. Now, when I hear NYU, I think like liberal countercultural thinking institution, I imagine you were in pursuit of a different lifestyle. What was, what was it like then? What was NYU like then? And then what was the culture like that you were moving to in Coconut Grove? The culture wasn't really that different. NYU was located in Greenwich Village and I had a part-time job working one of the little shops in the village and doing what? Selling crafts and earrings to tourists mostly. And I started smoking pot pretty early in life and, and, uh, did some acid, you know, when I was in high school, I think I was 16. I had, uh, enrolled in a course in the new school for social research, which was a small apartment on 14th street. And it was a course that Paul Krasner was teaching called Mickey Mouse to the Green Berets. I became friendly with Paul and he was making trips, uh, up to, uh, where Leary was was living in upstate New York and coming back with pocketfuls of LSD, which at the time was legal. (laughs) So that was kind of my introduction. And that was, you know, as is most people's experiences, pretty eye-opening and life-changing. You know, I, I was at Lafayette High School and I was pretty bored. And the college advisor, who was a friend of my sister's, as it turned out, she was kind of a legend at the school, called me into his office one day and said, look, you know, you're, you're just wasting your time here and sent me down to NYU to register for the next term, which was the, the second half of the year with the condition that I continued to go to high school at night, get my high school diploma. So that's how I sort of wound up at NYU. As I said, I spent a couple of years there and then realized that I wanted to get out to the world. And I'd been to Coconut Grove for, you know, for, a couple of trips down to Florida, and and it was just a charming little artist community and very cool and very tropical, actually. It's the only tropical part of Florida. And so I decided to just pack up a car with crafts that my friends were making, little stash boxes and pipes and things like that. And I met Peter Max, and, and uh, we became friends, and he gave me a bunch of posters. And, uh, Amazing. And, <laughs> yeah. We became very close friends. You know, he lived in Woodstock also at the time, and I hadn't moved here yet, but but he was here, and and so we we just became, you know, lifetime lifelong friends. So you're you're in you're in Coconut Grove. You're running a head shop. You know, clearly adventurous. What was the jump to to music festivals? How did you transition to you know putting on Miami Pop? So Miami at the time was a very conservative, right wing sort of place, and. The Grove was kind of this oasis in the middle of artists and weird people. So the experience for me was more than just running a shop. It was bringing a certain culture to the Southeast. Of course, music has always been a big part of my life. And so I started bringing bands to parks to do free concerts and Beans were starting to, you know, sort of become a thing. So we had beans in the parks. And so I, I just began that way. We sold the music that we sold in the shop um, was reflective of the counterculture. And, and so it became kind of this hub and outpost for the counterculture. People who, you know, when Leary came down, he would always come by. And Abby Hoffman came down, he would come by. And, you know, musicians that, that we were friends with, Fred Neal, 
in particular who was living in the Grove. And I don't know if you're familiar with Fred, but he was, uh, he wrote Everybody's Talking, but he was, he was, mm. he was a, just an amazing performer, amazing voice, amazing writer. And, and, you know, Johnny Mitchell would come down to hang with Fred and, and Stephen Stills and Crosby. And, and so that brought that element into our so life. So it was a scene. It like popped it was, off a scene. It was a scene. And so anyway, so, so we started bringing music into the, the mix and, and, you know, there were just some great characters living there at the time and just remarkable people. And Rick and I became really close friends and we had, I guess we had seen Monterey pop together and, we're sitting in my kitchen where most of the inspiration comes and, and uh, we said, why don't we do one of those here and let's do a Miami pop festival. So we proceeded to do that. We raised some money from some friends and put in whatever we had. And one of the, one of the partners was a guy who owned a club called the image. His name was Marshall Brevitz. He was in, involved with, with the local, I guess, you know, mafia slash criminal underground. <laughs> Okay, and, and one of the conditions of Marshall's investment was he had to get his investment back within six weeks. So we set off to do the Miami Post Festival, and we had six weeks to do it. That began a whole different kind of adventure for me. And this was sort of toward the end of my time in Florida. So I went to New York to do some booking. We had we had located Gulfstream Park as as a place for the festival. It was off season for the races, and it hadn't been raining for a long time. It was. Drought conditions were coming pretty regularly, and uh, so they agreed. I went out to New York and did the booking, and then we went about just figuring out what a festival was. And so we went to Criteria Recording Studios, which was the big recording studio in Florida, and, and convinced them to lend us their sound systems. This is because at this time, you're saying the individual studios had their own sound rigs that would tour with the bands, correct? It wasn't like there, there was no outdoor festival company to go and rent the sound from or like, why was that the case? There was no outdoor company to rent sound from. And we pretty much stripped his studios for wow. our, for our sound equipment. And what were the stages you said? The stages were trucks. They were actually trucks. They were flatbed trucks. We had, we had, you know, two sets, sets of two flatbeds side by side. And we had three sets of them so that we could move quickly between changeovers. You know, it was just, it was, it was fun trying to figure out what a festival was and how to physically put it together. And I got really lucky with the booking that, you know, Hendrix turned out to be our closing headliner because he happened to agree that day. And yeah, it was just a lot of, a lot of things that, that, that came together well. And because we were in the middle of this, you know, heavy drought season, we declined to get rain insurance. <laughs> and uh, the, the weekend of the festival, unbeknownst to us, on the Friday and Thursday and Friday, the, the municipality had started seeding the clouds over the Everglades because they were so desperate for rain. And Saturday was beautiful. Sunday was rained out. <laughs> it was just an incredible experience of the whole thing. It was just phenomenal. And it worked as a financial structure, like the business of that festival worked out. Nobody came after you for the money six weeks later. It would have worked out better had we not gotten rained out the second day, but sure. but we were pretty close to paying everybody off. I think there was, you know, the, the criteria was owed some money, but eventually we paid off all the bills and it wasn't a fortune luckily for us, but 
but it, it pretty much took all of our money. So we decided to do some follow-up concerts at a place out on, on Key Biscayne. There was a floating stage, beautiful setting. So we did two shows, I think. We did Ravi Shankar and Steppenwolf, and both got rained out. <laughs> so by the end of that little run, we decided to sort of pack in our, our enterprise. The most famous quote I could find of yours is the way to hear music, I think, surrounded by rolling hills and farmlands under a big sky. Yes. It's like, you know, it's hard for people in my generation or younger to imagine, but it wasn't like there were these outdoor festivals, music festivals and arts festivals that people went to. This didn't exist. And I was assuming as we were going to go through this interview and get, you know, into the later, you know, it's what's also mind blowing is that Woodstock is less than like 400 days after your first major festival yeah. in Miami. But I figured you had like confirmation bias, like it just went great. Everything worked. There was no rain. It was perfect. But it sounds like you got kicked in the teeth from the start of your time oh, yeah. in this business. <laughs> Absolutely. We sort of, <laughs> we learned, you know, the, the difficulties and the, and the gods early. <laughs> And how long after was Woodstock from these concerts that you were doing in Florida? Um, it was about a year and a half. Walk us through this time period. You've done these festivals. You know that this is a muscle that you now have. Take us back. What was, what was going on at this time? The situation in, in the Grove had changed a lot in that a lot of, you know, the old beautiful Grove houses were being torn down and, you know, high rises were being put up. It was becoming very commercialized. So it was... I felt time to leave and time to get back up north. And the Grove was a town very much like Woodstock in that it was a musician's and, and artist-based vibe and, and uh, small town. Grove especially was kind of a lazy place where um, I always like to describe it as a place where a dog could poop in the middle of the road all day and not get bothered. So I moved to Woodstock, rented a house, started figuring out how to make a living, I guess. <laughs> Were you doing other music projects? Did you open another record shop? And then how did you, what, what was the origination of the, you know, the, the first meetings where, you know, Woodstock came up as an idea? I started out actually not doing a music project. I, there's, there's a town near Woodstock called Kingston, which is a little bit of a bigger community, about twelve or 15,000 people. And there was a Sears and Roebuck in that town and it was going out of business and they were tearing down the building. And I happened to pass by and look in one day and I saw that they were, there was this huge pile of ceiling fans, you know, the old wooden bladed kind of ceiling fans. Mm -hmm. And I asked one of those workmen, what are you doing with those? And he said, nothing, we're going to junk them. And I said, can I give you five bucks a piece for them? And bought 200. <laughs> so I bought 200 of them and managed to get them back to my house and did a little painting and started to sell them to antique stores in the city. And I never hit a, sh a shop that didn't want them. <laughs> it was just amazing. No way. Yeah. You just had an eye for antique wooden ceiling fans, it turned out. I just knew they were cool. You know what I mean? And they worked. <laughs> so, um, and I sold them, I think, for 125 bucks a piece. And that got me through that summer and into the fall. And and I was going into the city, and then a friend of mine called. His name was Don Kider. Don was a vibes player and, and a drummer and had been a partner of mine. He was also an artist in, in a poster business that, that uh, we started out of the shop in Coconut Grove. And he called and said, look, I'm in town, uh, formed a new band, and can you just come down so we can talk? And I said, sure. And I came down, and he said, would you be willing to manage us? 
And I thought, you know, how, how tough could that be? <laughs> so I said, sure. And it was a pretty, you know, odd, odd direction. It was, it, it was, it was kind of a crossover jazz thing that, that they did, uh, which was just about, was, was a little early for that, but you know, it was something to do. And the singer of that band turned out to be Garland Jeffries and they were called the train. And I figured, you know, let's see if there's a record company that might be interested in them. And Abby Rader, who was the drummer, DK was playing vibes, and this guy, Abby Rader, was a drummer, said he knew a guy named Artie Kornfeld who worked at Capitol Records, he was vice president of A&R. So we were at a phone booth, and I said, give me a dime, and they gave me, or a nickel or whatever it was, and I called, and Artie's secretary got on the phone and connected him, and, and we talked for a few minutes and realized that we were from the same neighborhood, and he'd grown up 10 blocks from where I lived. I said, come on up. And so I did. And walked into his office, and he was sitting cross-legged on his desk, smoking a joint, and I thought I was home. We'll be back with more Art of the Hustle after the break. Oh, hi. I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time 
with the customers, that is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. And how rare was this crossover of like business people that also were like into that smoke joints? It was just burgeoning in the music business. And we became instant friends and, and started spending a lot of time. And I, you know, I was, I was coming into the city at seven in the morning and going back at the mid, on the midnight bus. I'm curious, like how much of this was entrepreneurial? It's like we were starting businesses. We wanted to like make a living. This was an arbitrage opportunity with the fans. How much of it was that versus it's like, this is the way I can pay for my lifestyle, do things I think that are interesting. Were you more interested in the sociology or the culture or the experience of the moment? Or were you already like a entrepreneur in the way that I think of it? Help us get into your mind state a little bit. I was interested in learning, first of all you know, something new and in a field that I thought was exciting. And I wasn't really driven by, by money. I don't think I ever happened. I think it was, it was more of things that fit kind of my view of, you know, what I thought was right and wrong in the world, an art form that I loved, which was music. And I think that those are the things that, you know, motivated me. Also, you know, we were in the midst of, of trying to make, make the world over if we could and stop a war. And, and I was very committed to those, those, those issues of the day. And, hmm. and so I, whatever kind of connected all those things are the things that I found interesting and motivating. You know, I also kind of realized that, you know, marketing was really a key to anything that you wanted to accomplish. I mean, you know, I was sort of a hippie in some senses, but I was also realistic and was more interested in, getting things accomplished than talking about them and dreaming about them. And, and I realized that, you know, marketing could be a tool for anybody to do anything, whether, you, whether it's for the public good or whether it's for your own gratification or financial gain or whatever. If you want to realize something, you have to bring other people that involve the public. You have to bring those people into it in a way that gets them excited and, and committed as, as, as it does you. So, you really need to commit yourself to, to whatever it is you're going to do in, in a complete way so that when you're trying to talk someone about getting involved, they have something to believe in other than just a story. I interrupted you to ask about the headspace, right? As you were telling us, um, you know, how the sort of initial, the initial conversation, the initial idea sparked and came, came into fruition. So I'm living in Woodstock and, and th that summer there were, these music events called sound outs that were put on by a woman named Pam Copeland who owned a little farm just outside of town. You know, there was a little stage six inches off the ground and it was in, in a beautiful cornfield and a lot of the talent was local, but local, you know, then was Richie Havens and NRBQ and, you know, amazing, amazing music. It was the kind of place where you'd go and there were maybe 300 people under the stars, smoking a joint, spending the night. And I thought, this is really the way to hear music. This is really the way to experience this glorious nature and music kind of coming together. So that, that summer I'd spent, you know, as I said, a, a lot of time with Artie and we'd be talking about stuff and ideas and 
you know, music, musical kinds of approaches to business. And it, I think it evolved, in my mind, from that experience at, at the, sound, the Sound Outs. It also seemed at that time that a lot of what we had been striving for and, and trying to, to accomplish with kind of the different social movements that were going on was starting to come apart. And a lot yeah. of, the, you know, the, this, this kind of blissful vision of peace and love and a way of living, you know, with each other was, was coming apart. A lot of the political groups were turning violent. And it was just, you know, things were, were getting dark, not just in America and around the world as well, um, riots in Paris. And, and um, so my thought was, let's see if we can take this back, stop that kind of motion toward toward disaster and take an event out into nature, bring everybody who wanted to come and see if we could actually make something like that work ourselves. And that was really the kind of foundation for what Woodstock was going to be about. There are a number of books and movies, countless articles. There's a, I'm sure a four-year college worth of time that you can, you know, read about the path that you went on and your partners went on. And all this to say is that at the time, I believe it was essentially the biggest mass gathering ever, 400,000, 500,000 people. Now here we are 50 years later in the days leading up, like what are the things, what are the, what are the memories that stick out? Well, you know, it was kind of troubled as well. I mean, we finally found a location in Wallkill, New York, uh, after looking everywhere. The initial location I, that I thought we'd have was Winston Farms, which is in a town called Saugerties near Woodstock that fell out early on. We worked at, you know, at the Wallkill site for three months and, and I had done all the booking and everything was kind of in the works and the town was getting more and more um, uptight. My two partners, the guy who funded this, John Roberts, and, and his partner, Joe Rosenman, had made a deal with the Wallkill um, Town Council uh, and described what was coming as, you know, wandering minstrels and jazz and folk music on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> uh. And as soon as our crews started coming in, you know, and they didn't look like John and Joe, they looked a lot more like me, yeah. people started getting uptight, and then there was a something called the CCC, the Concerned Citizens Committee, that started really trying to, to stop us. And at one point, there were some shots into our barn office, and uh, it was getting pretty ugly. And a month before the festival was to happen, they passed a local law, number one, local law number one, which made it basically impossible for us to continue there. I mean, one of the things about Woodstock that's, that stays with me is that there were things moving that were beyond our own energy or my own energy. It just had to be. I mean, you know, as I said, we spent months looking for a site and then had to settle for something that was really not ideal. And the day after we got kicked out of Wallkill, I had taken half of my staff and got them to start packing and the other half I put on the phones to start calling radio stations and newspapers and just putting out a call. And the, the day afterwards, we received a call from this guy, Elliot Tiber, who had a motel, kind of the motel from hell in White, in White Lake, New York, and said he had a festival permit and a site and we want you and come on up. So 
So we did. We went zooming up there, and uh, myself and and my head of operations, Mel Lawrence, and met Elliot in his hotel, which looked like the hotel from hell. I mean, none of the rooms had doors on them. There were things crawling out of the swimming pool. It was turned out to have been his parents' place, and he was trying to help them save it. And then he walked us down into the field, which was mostly underwater. And so I had to stop Mel from killing him. But we, we had passed some beautiful places on the way, and I asked if he knew a realtor that could take us around and show us some of the things, and he did. We went riding through the countryside and came over this hill and on Herd Road, and there it was, you know, this perfect place for us. You know, that was kind of miraculous, just things like that that would you would think would just be so against the odds kept us alive. And I just picture you in the car cruising in the countryside there. And it really warms my heart because you're kind of like, for me, the first like bohemian capitalists, you know, it's like, yeah. here you are using, you know, the system in a sense to achieve this incredible art project almost, right? Yeah. And an Aquarian exposition was the tagline or the, or the theme or the vision. What did that mean to you then? Well, you know, I mean, it was, the Aquarian exposition was just something that that reflected the age of Aquarius, which was about enlightenment. And we were hoping that this festival would would be that, would be, you know, a, a path to enlighten people about a different way to be together. It was called a music and arts festival because it was really to, to be a celebration of all the arts. So not, not just music. And we had a whole inner city from the ghettos around the Northeast, bringing artists up from the ghettos. And we had Native American artists that we flew in from New Mexico, and we brought a, a group called the Hog Farm, which was a commune out in New Mexico as well, to help the vibe and also to help people set up their campsites because we realized people were not, for the most part, used to living out under the stars for any period of time, especially right. people from, the, from from cities. And it just taught me, you know, so much about commitment and about possibility. You know, time is always can always be either your your friend or your enemy in things. And, you know, much as in Sun, Sun Tzu, The Art of War, you know, time can really be an ally. So you have to stay committed beyond what's right in front of you and sort of see a bigger, a bigger picture, a, bigger, a wider screen about possibility and how to get things done. Were there artists that were there? Were there people that you saw perform that, you know, you still to this day can feel? Well, Sly, certainly. Yeah. Was, yeah. was mind-bending. I'd seen him a lot, actually, during the, the course of that year. Why, 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 why for you? Because he, I mean, he really created a whole genre of music. You know, without Sly, there's no Prince, there's no, I don't know, he just sort of, his music and, and his words just called to me somehow. And his performance at the festival was mind-boggling. I mean, it was he created this this sort of giant church where, with you know he'd call out to the audience and half a million people would respond. It just it was just amazing. There, you know, there were several amazing moments. You know, the the most famous, I guess, is Hendrix's rendition of of the national anthem. Where were you? Where were you standing? I was standing. The back toward the back of the stage. Were you and were you paying attention? Were you watching and experiencing, or were you organizing and producing at that moment? 
I was working until he, until, until he went into that song, and then every, then everybody stopped. <laughs> you know, that was just it was just such a a perfect capture of of what was going on in our lives. As you're producing it and you're seeing it working, you also knew that it was not going to be a financial success, right? Like as you're on the stage, as you guys are producing this, you knew that you were going to have to dig out of this thing, correct? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, when when Friday rolled around and our ticket booths weren't in place, we knew that financially this was not happening. (laughs) (laughs) But it seems like you are able to both recognize that and compartmentalize that. Was that naivete at the time or were you just like so happy with the result, the feeling, the vibe, the happening that it occurred. Like, bring us, t- take us a little bit into your psychology at that moment. You know, one thing that I've always kind of had a natural knack for is compartmentalizing things and, and putting them in their own little safes or boxes so that they don't really sort of spill over into other, other things and other decisions and other, other energies. And, you know, the, to me, you know, having it happen was always the motivator and 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 that's and it, there it was happening so there was nothing we could do about it you know people were suggesting pass a basket around and all these you know, kind of crazy ideas and, and uh which i knew you know were ridiculous and so it was just this is you know let's realize what everybody else here has realized already this is free <laughs> so let's go make the announcement art of the hustle will be right back after this short break Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, then look no further than the Marketing School podcast hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast in the United States and number 15 on business in the United States. And it has amazing guests such as Alex Hormozzi, Layla Hormozzi, Cody Sanchez. We pull in these amazing interviews with other people that are not only great marketers, but actual operators. And the icing on the cake is Neil and myself were also operators as well. So we share learnings from the trenches. We share secrets that we otherwise wouldn't be sharing with other people. And we also share other advantages that will help you get ahead of your competition. So all you have to do is listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. 
Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Obviously, there was immediate cultural resonance from the event itself. And, yes. you know, I want to know from what you remember, like, what were the newspapers saying? How did it feel to you? And then the follow on effect, you had this like year or two afterwards where, you know, the country changed so much and this thing sort of like made its way into the canon of our culture of that time. Walk us through it a little bit. Take us back. I mean, the film is really kind of what brought what's not to the rest of the world. You know, I always felt that 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 Wadley did an amazing job of really sort of giving the audience a good picture of the experience and, and what it was like. And we, we were, you know, getting letters and calls from people all over the world that were just, you know, so ecstatic to have been a part of it, even through the film which I get, you know, and, and because it, it resonated with what, what else was going on at the time in the, you know, in the counterculture and with young people around the world. So we're kind of at the end of the festival where four kids or four people in early, 20, early to mid-20s, John Roberts, who is just a wonderful person and who was really the, put up the funding for the festival. He had a, an inheritance which was pretty sizable, and, and he just wrote all the checks. But his family, from the very beginning, thought it was, you know, horrible that, that John would even become involved with a project like this. Loud music, and, you know, it was that kind of family that it came from. So they kind of came in and took over. Uh, we, were in a, we were in debt about a million two at the end of the festival. And Artie and I went to Warner Brothers because we knew that the film was, you know, going to could have redeemed everything that we had lost plus, you know, quite a bit. And so we went to them for an advance to try and take the partnership out of its problem. And I think, I don't know if this is actually what happened, but it it was apparent to us that that John's family had already spoken to them and agreed to, to sell the interest in the film back to them. Or most of it. Interesting. Yeah. So, unfortunately, that's kind of the way it went. It was a disappointment, but I wasn't. I wasn't really affected by that. I, you know, I was. I was. Um, I had gotten so much out of it, and and, and mm-hmm. it had confirmed so much about what I was hoping. Like what? You know, just the way, the way that that people related to each other um, that weekend, and you know, all of the things that we had grown up with in the sixties about brothers and sisters and sharing and human rights and civil rights and all of those things, all of those struggles, you know, if you were there that weekend, those were all resolved. 
none of those kinds of issues were present. I mean, there was no discrimination. There was no fighting. There was no, there was only understanding and bonding. It was an example of how, of what's possible, but, you know, how the world could work. And you said it, you said uh, Woodstock is the beginning and it was a new culture and a new generation functioning on its own and it works and it will continue to work in the cities and it proves that it can happen. Tell us, like, where is that? Where, where did the movement go? Do you see it today? Have you felt that feeling in other places that you've visited over the last 40 years? And I'm also curious why we haven't seen more of these sovereign experiences where people can, you know, kind of enter an altered state of communion and community. First of all, I think you, you, you can't construct that kind of experience. I mean, it's got to become, it's got to, it's got to, you can create a space for it and conditions that are favorable for it, but I, you can't program it. So after the festival, of course, we thought the world was going to be different the next day and then reality strikes and, and you, you know, people go back into their lives and, and the changes are much more subtle than they were on the weekend. But nonetheless, it did filter into society. Things did become more liberal. To me, you know, one of those moments was, I think it was in the book, that, that when Obama was inaugurated, it was kind of one of those Woodstock moments. I mean, I think somebody in the New York Times called it um, Washington's Woodstock. It's just those, wow. those moments when there's actual, when, when it's not something you describe, it's something that you experience. When it's not, you know, just rhetoric, it's, it's rooted. Those are special moments that just have to come together almost spiritually. What brings you pride? Because you're not a proud guy. Like, that's not one of the adjectives or superlatives that I would use to describe your personality. In fact, you're incredibly humble. You know, like the first time I remember getting to meet you and I was like, oh my God, like you built Woodstock. How did you do it? It's so incredible. And you're like, well, first we built a stage, you know, and it's like, and, and you've, you've always, you've always wanted to shave down the pedestal. You've always wanted to empower people through your story. But, but what does make you proud when you think about, you know, the legacy of Woodstock, when you think about its effects on society, where do you see its fingerprints that really make you happy? Pride's, pride's kind of an odd word, you know, for me to describe. It, it brings me pleasure. It brings me happiness. It brings me yeah. faith in, in humanity. It, it brings confidence in possibility for us to evolve, you know, along a, a spiritual path. So the Woodstock experience was... For me, confirmation of those things, of, of, of possibility. And that's something I cherish. In your career since, you know, literally 40 years ago, you've produced numerous festivals and managed other artists and built all manner of different entrepreneurial businesses. Mm -hmm. You know, I know that you've also had some, some major challenges with organizing Woodstock 50 and, you know, with, with both the positive and negative of 99. Yep. Not not to dive into the to the blocking and tackling of like you know prescri prescribing the issues, but I, I do want to know for you, you know, like you're you've you've lived a lot of life, you've you know gone down the path enough times to where I imagine some of the wisdom that you have for us, you know, entrepreneurs that want to have you know an impact with our work. What are some of the things that have come up for you, or the lessons that you've continued to learn later into your career? Well, you know, 99 is a good example of reflection of, of a certain mood and a certain time. 
it was a time when the youth culture was kind of angry and and so it was reflected in the bands of the day that were popular and I learned, I guess, that you can't force something to happen against its nature. And in a way, because of the way 99 was, was booked, first of all, the bands that were happening at, at that moment and, and were popular at that moment, that no matter what your intentions are, what's going to carry through is really what, what underlies a certain time in history, in a certain culture. And you can't really fight against that. You know, Coachella, for example, embraces the Los Angeles culture. You know, that's that's great marketing and that's great insight. But, you know, that, that's why when we decided to do this 50th anniversary, it was not really about trying to recreate a Woodstock moment so much as to highlight what I think is the biggest threat to the planet, which is global warming. And that was what that was about. And that was its reason to be not so much, you know, about trying to recreate a spiritual Woodstock moment, but more to bring people into that discussion because it's something that's fundamental to everybody's life. And I think that that, to me, you know, 99 really was a lesson about that, about what you, you know, what's, what's, what's the right path to follow when you're when you're trying to put together sort of a mass public event. You have children that are teenagers. Yes. Children in their 40s? Yes. And you have friends like me in our 30s and you have friends that are your age. You have this really really wide set of inputs, of trusted inputs. Do we romanticize the revolutionary attitude of the 60s? Do we misinterpret it in some way? Talk to us about what are we misremembering? What, what do we need to understand more about the 60s? And what are the parallels for today? I think it was, it is, you know, sort of romanticized somewhat, in, you know, looking back at the 60s. Um, but, you know, I think it's just recognizing kind of what's possible at, at any particular moment. Take, for example, your efforts with Summit and, and the idea behind Summit. You know, that's only possible because of the more responsible way to approach entrepreneurship and, and, and business with, with an awareness of, of the environment that we live in and a planet that we have to respect and, and care for. And I think that, that the, your timing was perfect in that it was, there was this sort of burgeoning awareness among some entrepreneurs that this was an important way to approach business and, and life. And I think that, you know, you took that spark and really fanned it into a flame, which encouraged more people to take that perspective on on business and, and career. And I think that, you know, it's a, a constantly evolving world and, and, and possibility is something that continues to occur every day, every year, every, every decade. Um, and recognizing what is possible and then, you know, applying intelligence and commitment to uh, encourage it. What can we lean into? What can we do to do right by your legacy? We all love the work that, you know, resulted from your efforts. What would make you happy to see more of in the world? I mean, I'm just, you know, I'm, as you know, I'm, I'm such a fan of, of what you guys are doing. You want to talk about pride. I'm very proud of all of you guys, because I think that what you're doing is really a sea change. And the listeners, Talk to me about what, what the listeners can do. How can we continue to represent the work? 
Stay focused, stay committed. Stay focused, stay committed, you know? stay, stay kind and connected to, you know, your brothers and sisters in the human race. I mean, that's really the bottom line here is that we're all part of this, this experience together. There is no, you know, there shouldn't be, I should say, any, any, any walls put up between people and, and, and ideas. You know, if you do, if you approach things with gratitude and kindness and, and compassion in everything you do, the world would be a much better place and, and hopefully we'll get there. Well, thank you, Michael, for joining us on the podcast. Thank you for listening. Pleasure, Jeff. This has been The Art of the Hustle. You're the man. Thank you again. Really appreciate it. Anytime, Jeff. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you want to level up your marketing and business knowledge, look no further than the Marketing School Podcast, hosted by Neil Patel and yours truly, Eric Sue. It is the number one marketing podcast on Apple and number 15 on business in the United States. Now, if you want to listen to interesting conversations with operators that have been there, done that, also with other interesting guests, then listen to Marketing School every weekday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast.